Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolfaw and I am so excited for our show today. I have with me a truly unique guest. I have Richard Harry Harris, Dr. Harris, who many of you will know from the 2018 rescue of the Thai soccer team, the boys soccer team that was trapped in a cave in Thailand. It was memorialized in an incredible documentary called The Rescue that was released in 2021. And Dr. Harris was instrumental to that rescue of those boys. And he's been incredibly kind to agree to come on the show and talk about that as well as some other things today. So uh, Dr. Harris, thank you so much for coming on the show. G'day, Jed. Very nice to be with you. This, uh, you have the honor not only of uh, being a guest, I've been incredibly excited to talk to you, but also by far, the farthest away guest that I have uh, have interviewed, you are, of course, coming to us from Australia. It's uh, evening for me and early morning for you. Uh, so thanks for taking the time. Yeah, no, well, it's great. And um, we did have a few technical problems. I think the satellites were a bit sleepy uh, this That's morning right. or overnight, but uh, we're on we're on fire now. We'll be fine. Exactly. We made it work. All right. Um, I'll remind listeners that if you are interested in getting CME credit by listening to ACRAC, you can go to the show notes at ACRAC.com and get CME credit by clicking on the link. And that is provided by our partners at CMEFI. So we appreciate that. All right. So, uh, Harry, and you, you do go by Harry. Is that right? Uh, yes, please, Jed. And I should just say to the, those people who are about to apply for their CME point, there will be a paucity of data and uh, and uh, any kind of uh, you know literature search will come up with very little knowledge in this uh, podcast, but um, hopefully some practical tips for the anesthesiologist or critical care physician who's kind of up against it and finds themselves in a slightly unusual position. It is hard to imagine being more up against it than you were in 2018 and having to really improvise. So I'm excited to hear uh, us as you talk about that. Let me ask you first to just, before we get to that, tell the audience a little bit about you and your current practice. What does it look like? Yeah, well, my current practice has changed a lot over the last four years. So maybe I'll tell you what my practice looked like before this cave rescue kicked off. So uh, I am an anesthesiologist. I have to remember to say that, not anesthetist, which um, obviously is what we say in Australia. And um 
so I was working half-time in a private practice with a, a mixed practice of a bit of paediatrics, orthopedics, uh, ENT, bit of neurosurgery, just, you know, a very general, uh, you know, private practice. Uh, in, in Australia, there's uh, the private hospital system is pretty, pretty good. We have, um, you know, ICUs in many of the bigger hospitals and pretty much most of the, the types of surgery occur that you would find in, in the bigger centres with some, a few exceptions, obviously, like neonates and, and so forth. So that was my life. And the other uh, half of my life, I was working in aeromedical retrieval work, which in Australia, again, is slightly different to the US. It's a physician-based uh, medivac system. So we covered the entire state of South Australia, which is a pretty big chunk of country, very remote, very uh, low population density outside the city of Adelaide, which is where I live. And so either driving using helicopters or fixed-wing aircraft out to sick or injured people around the, the countryside who need that critical care uh, medical uh, transport service and, and, and treatment. So I was very busy. I was working about 60 hours a week and, and flat out in, in medicine and absolutely loving it. And then that all changed, I guess, when uh, this rescue happened and my life bears very little resemblance to that now. I imagine, and we'll get to that, but um, sounds like before that, uh, you were, a, as you would say, an Australian anesthetist doing, uh, for at least the part that wasn't the rescue, uh, kind of remote rescue, doing what a lot of us do. So that was your background and training. Did you do any additional training in, to kind of qualify for or be prepared for this uh, kind of deep woods rescue that you were doing? Well, I guess the other half of my life was my passion, my hobby, which was exploring flooded caves. And I've been doing that since the mid-80s. Uh, I started scuba diving in 1979 as a 15-year-old boy. And the water has been a massive part of my life. And in about the year 2008, I was actually exploring a, a very remote cave in Western Australia with my friend Craig Challen, who becomes important in the, the rest of this story as well. And we were in a chamber, a rock chamber, uh, and to reach that chamber, we had to swim about four four and a half kilometres, so about three miles. And um, we were carrying equipment across this very uh, big rock pile. And I suddenly said to Craig, what would happen if one of us fell over here and broke a leg or hit our head? You know, who and how would someone come to rescue us and take us out through that four and a half kilometres of water uh, in, in, in a state of disrepair? And based on that sort of selfish concern, I suppose, I started to work <clears throat> with some of the emergency services here in South Australia and developed a program called the Sump Rescue Orientation Program. And through that training, we started to build a capability to move injured or sick people through the, a water-filled passage. And so every year I've been running this course in Australia and sometimes in New Zealand and developing this capability. And sadly, I guess the only time we'd been put to use was for some body recoveries for some cave divers who had uh, perished in the caves. And I guess we were starting to feel a little bit like a fireman who'd never been to a fire. You know, we had this training and we were, we were quite keen to put it to use and hopefully help somebody who had come a, uh, come a cropper, as we say. And then when this thing went up in Thailand, I thought, well, we've got, we've got to be there. You know, we can help. Oh, yes. Let's talk about that. So when did you first hear? Do you, I mean, you must remember kind of the moment when you first heard about this. Did you hear about it on the news first? At some point, you, you I think, got a call uh, to, to asking you if you could come help. But you, did you know about it before that call or, or only when, when you got called? 
Yeah, no, I was following it very early on. I think it was 24 hours into the period when the boys were missing. There was a tiny little snippet of information in our local newspaper and, of course, it caught my eye. And so I actually reached out to a friend of mine, Ben Raymond, who's a Belgian cave diver who runs a, a technical diving operation in Phuket in southern Thailand. And I'd been over there the year before exploring some caves with Ben. And so I reached out to Ben and said, what, what's going on with these kids? Is, is this a cave diving rescue that's required? And are you involved? And he started, well, I started a conversation with him. He had already headed up there to see what he could do to help. And he was working with the Thai Navy SEALs. And then uh, a few days later, uh, a couple of guys I know from the British cave diving group, Rick Stanton and John Valanthan, they were called over to give uh, some help. And that for me, that was a, an, another step forward because, you know, they really are very, very skilled um, cave divers, probably, you know, the best in the world if if there is such a thing, the most experienced. And they'd actually been involved in some rescues previously. So I thought, well, if, if Rick and John are there, then these boys have got half a chance. And so I started communicating with them a little bit as well. And after the boys were finally found by those two guys, um, then that's when this idea uh, started to evolve about perhaps getting an anaesthetist involved. And and so when, yes, and it looked, at least in the documentary, like they kind of initially said to you, can you come help? And your first reaction, I could be wrong, but my memory is that your first reaction was kind of like, no, it can't be done. Um, that may be wrong, but tell me, what was your first reaction when they first reached out to you and said, can you help us get these kids out? No, you're exactly correct. It was three days after the kids were found. Rick and John were very despondent about the you know, the future or the possible survival of these boys, they could see no possible way that this was going to end well. You know, to put it in context, these kids were stuck 2.4 kilometres underground, you know, horizontally, and of that, over a kilometre was fully submerged passage, which only scuba divers could pass. And not only that, the cave was extremely difficult. Um, you know, technically it was, it was uh, you know, flood, flooding still. It was uh, high flow. Uh, zero visibility every time the water changed um, you know in strength it would flush all the mud out of the cave and so it was just you, you might as well have your eyes closed to move through the cave and also there were a number of very tight restricted areas in the cave so you had to really wriggle through these difficult tight sections of the cave so it was a sort of nine out of ten on the scary cave diving scale and these were the best cave divers in the world who were finding it difficult so for them to even find the boys was extraordinary i mean one of the most incredible bits of cave diving i've i've ever been aware of and and i should also add you know we need to give credit to the thai navy seals and people like ben who uh you know were assisting but i think the lion's share of this done of this effort was done by those two british guys in the end um and yeah they were really worried and so they were racking their brains how can we find a way to bring these children out because at the time we were the information we had was that the kids couldn't even swim let alone learn to cave dive and teaching someone to dive is one thing teaching someone to remain calm in in a cave dive of that level is essentially impossible it will result in the children panicking and drowning themselves and or the rescuer as well so that was that was discounted very early on and it was left with, you know, all these other options. Can they pump the water out? Can we drill down to them? But the thing that became an issue was the, the timeline available to them because the meteorologists were starting to say, you've got three to five days to get these boys out 
because then the monsoon is coming back and once it comes, it's going to stay and that could be three months. And the boys couldn't possibly survive, you know, damp and wet and um, starving in this cave for three months. So uh, it was time for action. And so Rick proposed this idea. In fact, in a text message, he he basically said just this one sentence, could you sedate someone? (coughs) Excuse me. Rick just said in this one sentence, could you sedate someone and dive them out of the cave? And I just went, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, you don't have to be an anaesthetist or a cave diver to realise that if you render someone unconscious and push their head underwater for what will be a three-hour dive out of this cave, they're not going to be alive at the end of it. It's impossible. And that, that wasn't just informed by my theoretical concerns about the airway and hypothermia and all the hundred things that I could imagine could kill these boys. It was also informed by the fact that I myself in my cave rescue training had, I remember very clearly this one day when I pretended to be unconscious and had a full face mask put on so that my airway was at least sealed from the water and had some friends basically manoeuvre me through a cave, you know, upside down sometimes, head up, head down, to see whether I could be taken safely through a cave passage underwater with me uh, not assisting in any way, shape or form. And inevitably I found the mask slowly filled up with water and I would have drowned if I hadn't obviously taken active steps to to rectify that. So I was 100% sure this could not work. Um, so I, when Rick rang me on this day after we exchanged the, the text messages, he said, well, you know, this is the only possible thing we've got left to try, otherwise these kids will die. And I said, well, look, what, I'll come over and I'll bring Craig, my, my friend, with me um, as a bit of a backup for me. And perhaps I can go to the end of the cave and offer some medical support to the kids while you guys come up with a better plan than, the, than this one. And so that's the basis that we left for Thailand. So you, so this is essentially an impossible problem to solve. Uh, that was your initial uh, assessment, which I think anybody would have agreed. And uh, so you initially went thinking, well, you know, I can't do this, but maybe I can help, you know, maybe I can kind of take care of them while someone figures something else out. So what changed? What be, what made you decide to tackle the impossible? Well, it's a very good question. And I can't remember the exact moment in time when I decided that I was going to proceed with this plan, but it evolved over about 36 hours. So when Craig and I first arrived in Thailand, the first thing I said to the British divers was, you know, what is the cave like? You know, will we be okay to dive through there? Because just because Rick and John are okay, that doesn't mean that a couple of Aussie cave divers are going to be up to the job. So, you know, as in any rescue operation, the first responsibility of the rescuer is for their own safety. And so I I just needed to dive the cave myself and cross that one off, make sure we were okay, but also to see the boys with my own eyes, see the environment that they were living in, um, make a, a rudimentary assessment of their health. Because remember, they hadn't eaten anything for 10 days when they were found. And you know, I wasn't really sure what the implications of that were. I mean, these are skinny, fit little kids already. So what what was their status like? With how impacted by that were they? And what what is it like to be sitting in, in damp mud for by then 13 days? And, um, you know, what, what effects would that have had on their, on their health? So I just wanted to eyeball them and get a feel for the whole thing and make this hypothetical concept into something more concrete. And so the next day, Craig and I did dive the cave. And look, it was difficult. But having done that, I felt, okay, look, this is within my my capabilities. I didn't feel after that that I was in any 
direct physical danger from the, the cave diving itself. Although, having said that, you wouldn't normally dive in a cave that is actively flooding. You dive in a cave that is, you know, um, quiescent or, or, or stable. Uh, so it was a bit sketchy, but it was it was okay. And then to meet the boys, you know, they actually looked incredibly good. I, I was surprised how well they looked. They are very thin, obviously, but they're all walking and talking. I could hear a couple of them had quite moist coughs. Um, but as you know, I, I did a bit of a sort of systematic review of all of them. By then, there was a Thai Navy SEAL doctor in the cave with them who spoke quite good English. So with his help, I could just go through all their, you know, their skin, their their gastro system, their respiratory, every, everything, and and establish that they were in pretty good shape. So, and and looking at the environment, it occurred to me that these kids can't survive in here very long. I mean, the amount of excrement in the cave was building and they didn't have enough food and there was actually no room to put enough food in to just keep them there for the monsoon season. Um so I started to realise that they had to come out, so that leaving them was not an option. Um, there was all these operations in terms of pumping water out and drilling down, as I mentioned. All those things were not going to succeed, I, I realised, over the, you know, the course of that 24 hours. So I came out realising that I had two choices. One was to get on a plane and fly back to Australia and leave those boys and those Navy SEALs, by the way, to die a very slow and unpleasant death, either from starvation or infection or exposure, or we give this a, a go. And, you know, I think sometimes it is easier just to do something than to do nothing. And, you know, for me personally, it was impossible to just leave Thailand without giving something a try. It just would have been abhorrent to me. I mean, the psychological impact on those boys alone just imagining the next day when no one shows up to see them. Um, I couldn't have lived with that. So that was part of the reason. The second little thing that I think helped me make the decision was that, and, and this is a very poor justification for a plan, but I just felt in my heart that, you know, if, the, if they are going to inevitably die, then at least under an anaesthetic, they, they'll be asleep when it happens. So... You know, uh, I guess that gave me some solace that this was the way forward. So then we set about building a plan to do it. Wow. Okay. So really compelling. You you made it there. Uh, not many people in the world could have even made it to them, right? I mean, that's pretty clear. You incredibly fortuitously had this training that allowed you to to even make the dive. And then you saw them and felt... Like, you know, there's no other option and you couldn't leave and, and let them die. So you had to try it. So now you've kind of said, all right, this is probably impossible, but I'm going to give it a shot. So what did you do next? You must have considered a variety of options uh, of how to anesthetize these boys to get them out. You've already said there was no option to keep them awake. That would not have worked. They would have panicked and, and maybe killed both themselves and the person trying to get them out. So you knew you had to sedate or completely anesthetize them. Talk, me, talk to me about the process you went through of thinking about what to do and how you came up with a final plan. Yeah, well, knowing that this was a possible um, scenario when I was, the moment I got the call from Rick and he put that, you know, idea in my mind, I started writing down a list of possible, you know, agents that I could use. And I remember I've still got the piece of paper, actually, you know, it had clonidine, dexmedetomidine, ketamine, obviously, um, thought briefly about an infusion of something shorter acting, and I just kept coming back to ketamine as the only possible option. Um, 
you know, initially I thought, well, if we could just sedate them, then maybe a, a long-acting benzo in a, in a mild, you know, a moderate dose would be would be safe. But I think once I'd seen the boys and seen the cave, I realised that anything short of a general anaesthetic was not going to be sufficient to prevent panic, which was, you know, ultimately the, the problem. And because, um, you know, I think two things helped me with my, you know, my comfort with the ketamine. I mean, obviously... Um, having used it a great deal was, was the main thing. And, and I had experience um, from living and working in Vanuatu for two years, um, using ketamine almost as a primary agent for that period of time, you know, working in a developing country with ketamine in very r- remote and austere locations, you know, sometimes just with a pulse oximeter as my only monitor out in a village doing moderately significant surgery with some of the amazing surgeons that that really reassured me about the safety profile of ketamine in some of those situations and then of course we've all used it in anesthesiology and you know emergency cases profound blood loss obstetrics and so forth so you know I, I had that on my side and then the final thing was my use as in the aeromedical setting and you know extracting people from vehicles and you know with legs trapped under the dashboard all those sorts of situations so I felt like I had a pretty good case for, you know, for being expert, I guess, in, in the use of ketamine. But one thing I hadn't done was used it intramuscularly very often. Um, and when I had it, it had only ever been a single dose. It had never been, you know, on, ongoing maintenance of anaesthesia. And a quick literature search, you know, on the plane, I couldn't find anything about maintaining anaesthesia with, with ketamine. And I had found that you know, in the in the anaesthesia cases I had done, I found, uh, as you probably have yourself, that you know, if, if if the case goes for more than about three quarters of an hour, there is this stead, steady trend for heart rate and blood pressure to head head upwards. Um, but again, I thought in these young fit kids, is that going to be an issue? I don't know. Probably not. So it came down to ketamine, and um, you know, I was worried about the dysphoric reactions, and so I decided perhaps I can give them just a tiny little dose of a, a benzo. I was so fearful of respiratory depression in any form that I ended up giving probably a homeopathic dose of alprazolam with it, and then uh, the, the the secretions I was a bit concerned about too, given that you know even a small volume of fluid in this face mask could could be fatal. So a bit of atropine intramuscularly as well. So this. This anaesthesia plan came together for an intramuscular-based ketamine anaesthetic. Um, I also realised that I wouldn't be able to take the boys all the way out myself and, you know, if each dose would last half to three-quarters of an hour was my best guess, then they were going to need several top-ups on the way out and these other divers were going to have to do that. So I was going to need a technique that was teachable in about a half an hour class to a bunch of people with no medical experience whatsoever. So it was, you know, it was increasingly worrying. Every aspect of this as it evolved, I got more frightened and more concerned, not less. Uh, but uh, that's essentially the technique that we settled on. Wow. All right. So you decided on ketamine, a very small dose of alprazolam and um, atropine. So a couple of questions. You mentioned uh, dexmedetomidine. Obviously, you can give dexmedetomidine intranasally. I'm sure you thought about that, but it seems like that, you know, as we know, dexmedetomidine does not produce general anesthesia. So you thought that the, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing you felt that the uh, anti-anxiety effects of the dexmedetomidine would not, not be sufficient. It wasn't enough. Is that right? Well, the other thing about DEX is I didn't have massive experience with it. Um, you know, this I, I just felt like I needed a drug that was my best friend and that I'd 
I'd used a lot, like thousands of times, not, you know, a hundred times. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I ruled that out pretty quickly because of my own, you know, inadequacies perhaps, and maybe someone more expert in that drug could have chosen and used that successfully. I don't know, but I did want them to be completely, um, unconscious for this purpose. Yeah. It's hard for me to imagine dexmedetomidine doing the job. I mean, it certainly doesn't produce general anesthesia the way that ketamine can. Um, what about, uh, the choice of atropine versus glycopyrrolate or scopolamine? What, 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 uh, why'd you land on atropine? Yeah. Again, just simplicity. I felt, um, you know, I, I quickly thought about glycopyrrolate and, that I think that would have been a better choice, but for some reason in my mind, I'm going to a, a remote area. Maybe they won't have any. Um, I, you know, I didn't want to take a suitcase full of drugs to Thailand <laughs> going through the airport. So, you know, I knew I would have to find everything when I got there. And I had warned the Australian government before I left that, you know, this is the list of drugs I'm thinking about, which was quite extensive at that point. So just make sure it's all already there. Um, and yeah, I think I was just, the blinkers were on a little bit and I, th- I was saying, keep it simple, atropine. That's, that's sure. simple. everyone's got atropine. So yeah, I yep. probably, if I went again, I, I would have used glycopyrrolate. Okay. And so, uh, obviously you mentioned before a couple of things, concern about any kind of secretions or airway obstruction would be fatal, right? Obviously you wouldn't know that they had stopped breathing until the next checkpoint, uh, when you surface to give them their next dose. And by that point they'd be dead if they had stopped breathing. So did you consider nasal airways, oral airways, uh, you know, what, what, what did, and I think you didn't use them. What was the thought process there of, of keeping those airways open? Yeah, that's a very good question. So I spent a lot of time thinking about some kind of airway intervention, um, you know, maybe a, a laryngeal mask airway that could be cut off a bit short or, you know, so it wouldn't, you know, cause a problem with the, um, uh, the full face mask. Certainly the, the idea of a nasal airway was attractive to me. But you know what? When I saw these children, they are the perfect anesthesia candidates. They are tiny, skinny, long-necked, um, beautiful airway boys. <laughs> and uh, and I think I decided that any kind of intervention, the risks of, of that would, would outweigh the potential benefits, especially with a drug like ketamine that is so forgiving in terms of the airway. And the other thing to remember is that these boys would all be prone so any secretions would likely drain out of the, the airway. And, and you know, my experience with laryngospasm using ketamines, actually, I can't really think of a, a time when it's been an issue. I haven't specifically look, looked up the literature on that, but my impression is that that's not really a thing. Um, but I thought if I start poking airways, <clears throat> if I start poking airways into these boys and inevitably they are going to be very light at some point and probably a bit over at other points, you know, it's just going to cause problems. And plus, if they do start coughing and retching because of something stimulating their larynx, well, there's no way to pull the mask off and hoik the, the airway out of, their, out of them while you're underwater. So, again, I just thought, no, nah, let's just keep this simple. If I, if I produce an epistaxis from a nasal airway, that's definitely going to cause more trouble than, than what I'm trying to achieve. And I think in retrospect, that was the right call. Trust you. It sounds me. like... Yeah, it sounds like it to me. I agree with you. And I have looked at this literature a little bit. And essentially, ketamine uh, doesn't cause, certainly doesn't cause apnea. And uh, very rarely, I think it, we, we learn it, we're taught ketamine, um, you know, can cause laryngospasm. But I, I think that's much more rare than people think. So I think you're right. Um, very safe. And I agree. I mean, uh, if you don't need it, 
you, we all we often think of inter- these kind of interventions as being risk free, but of course they're not. And uh, it sounds like you had good reason not to or to opt not to use them. You had mentioned before that when you did your own sort of trial of being uh, pretending to be asleep and and people carrying you through that you found the mask filled up with water. Um, you know, obviously that would be a real problem here. How did you prevent that in these in the boys? Well, I didn't. Um, that was my number one concern. I had three major concerns. If I could just uh, sort of quickly run through those, the first one was that Please. the mask would flood, or even just the secretions in the mask would would cause a problem. Uh, the second one was that at some point their airway would obstruct just by a positional effect, or um, you know, laryngospasm, or, or a little bit of water in the airway would cause a laryngospasm. And the third thing was, uh, and I was convinced that if those two things didn't kill these boys, I was absolutely convinced that hypothermia would, because the water's only 23 degrees Celsius, and um, you know, inevitably under an anaesthetic plus loose-fitting wetsuits, moving through flowing water, the heat is just going to get stripped away from these boys, and inevitably their their core temperature is going to head south. Um, and in retrospect, I think I can explain why these three things didn't happen. And the first one is that the full face mask that I had practiced with didn't have a positive pressure function in them, whereas the mask that we used in Thailand did have this positive pressure switch on them. Now, positive pressure full face masks are used in uh, diving in the mine, uh, in the mine uh, industry, mining industry. And the main idea behind them is that um, it will keep toxic water or gas out of the mask. So firefighters use them, for example. And it means that if there is a breach in the seal of the mask, then gas will flow out rather than letting something nasty in. And I'm sure that um, that certainly helped keep their airways dry. And afterwards, I actually started to think more about, well, what? how did this positive pressure function in these masks contribute overall to the to the safety and, and uh, oxygenation perhaps in these boys? And knowing what we do about the use of, of CPAP and, and PEEP in, in uh, maintaining oxygenation, I sort of um, decided to study this a bit further and I sent one of the masks over to a friend's laboratory in Auckland in New Zealand, uh, Simon Mitchell, who's a professor of anesthesiology there. He's got a fantastic laboratory for studying a lot of uh, diving related equipment and so they put divers in this shallow swimming pool and did a whole heap of airway pressures and spirometry and stuff on the on the mass and found that it provided a, a CPAP of a range of five to ten centimeters of water throughout the respiratory cycle so I'm convinced that that actually uh, really enhanced their their oxygenation during the the rescue because I know that at one point some of the boys had respiratory rates as low as three when they were exiting the cave because the, the divers told me how, how worried they were. And whilst I'm sure their CO2 levels were very high, they, um, they never seemed to lose their, their oxygen levels. So, um, so that, that, that was the saving grace, I think, from the point of view of the full face mask. The second point about the airway in a positional sense is that they're quite buoyant, these masks, and when you're lying prone, of course, the mask immediately extends your 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 uh, neck and head and and keeps your airway in a beautiful position. And when I've gone back and and used these masks again myself, I, I it became obvious to me how much buoyancy there is in the mask. And so, for these little boys with skinny necks, it would have been just a perfect position for them. And then the third thing, the hypothermia. Now, all all the kids came out with core temperatures mostly between about thirty two to thirty five 
degrees Celsius. And I'll admit, you know, I've taken plenty of patients out to the post-operative recovery uh, area with with worse temperatures than that. So, you know, I gave myself a little pat on the back for that. But there was one lad, in fact, it was the coach, the biggest of the kids really, who had a core temperature of 29. So getting a bit a bit scary. Um, and I, I guess I put that down to the sympathomimetic effects of the ketamine. Perhaps that caused some either vasoconstriction or prevented the normal vasodilatation that we see with essentially every other sedative or anaesthetic drug. Um, so that was fortuitous rather than planned. And it was only again afterwards that I thought thought about that. And perhaps that's the reason why their core temperature wasn't so drastically affected, unless there's some central effect of ketamine that is different to other agents. But again, I turn to my colleagues at the John Hopkins to explain the, uh, the details <laughs> of that to me. <laughs> I agree with you. I think it, I, I, as soon as you said um, that you the concern about the hypothermia, I wondered if the vasoconstrictive effects of the ketamine would actually help um, attenuate that. And I, I have to imagine that it must have, you know, uh, that, that otherwise, like you said, I mean, you're 32, 32 degree water. Is that what you said? Uh, 23 degree water. 23, yeah. 23. Is that uh, is uh, Celsius, 20, Celsius? Celsius. Of course, so because otherwise it'd be frozen. Yeah. yeah. 23 Celsius, well, man, we'd have to do the uh, calculation. Yeah. Cold. But, cold. <laughs> just remember, you're supposed to be, you're supposed to be 37 uh, yeah. Celsius. Yeah. yeah. So it's too low. Right. Yeah. 28, 29 is the VF, 28 is VF country, whatever that is in Fahrenheit. So. Okay. Yeah. So definitely cold. And, and uh, yeah, so that's really interesting. Um were they breathing 100% oxygen or what were they breathing from the tanks? Yeah, my initial plan was 100% oxygen for them. But um, for logistical reasons, we could only get 80% oxygen in the cylinders. And that was, um, you know, the reason for that is to get high enough pressure in a scuba tank with oxygen. You can't just use a compressor and run the oxygen through that because it blows up. So you have to use a, a device called a gas booster, which can push gas up a pressure gradient. And the booster that they had on site wasn't sufficient to pump these tanks up high enough. So we topped them off with air up to a, a good pressure, which left us with 80% oxygen. And in fact, I think that was a better choice because, um, you know, probably a, uh, prevented a bit of absorption, atelectasis. And uh, the, other, the other risk in, in diving uh, scenarios, of course, is that high partial pressures of oxygen can cause seizures. Once you get past 1.6, um, which is obviously 100% oxygen at six metres depth, which is what, 20 feet, um, that uh, presents a real risk. Although with these sedative drugs on board, probably not so high. Although, sort of um, going a little off piste here, um, hypercarbia is a, is a risk factor for, for oxygen seizures uh, as well. So because of the cerebral vasodilatation, you deliver more oxygen to the to the brain and the risk of seizures is higher so um now fortunately the cave was only five and a half meters deep at its deepest point and the rest of it was literally a couple of meters most of the time so i felt that 100 percent oxygen would have been safe but i think the 80 percent turned out to be a better choice and i don't think any of these kids became hypoxic uh during the journey apart from one who did actually become apneic um and I think uh, you did say that ketamine and, and apnea, are, you know, it's not something you really imagine can happen. But certainly there was profound hypoventilation in many of the children with respiratory rates down to three or so, as I mentioned. But maybe just that tiny dose of valprazolam was the, the trigger or perhaps the cold itself with the ketamine became an issue. 
And so there was one boy who we were very worried about as he was leaving the place where I'd anaesthetised him. Rick Stanton was taking him out and he called back to me just before he submerged and said, this boy is barely breathing, Harry. And I asked him just to call out each time he breathed and it was a respiratory rate of about three. So I'd probably given him a bit much ketamine and um, I just sort of chased Rick and this boy through that, that tunnel as quickly as I could because it was the last boy for the day. And when I got through there, they'd pulled him up on the beach and they were very worried about him. So I quickly scrambled up and, and took his mask off and he was, he was blue, very blue, and he wasn't breathing. So I was just about to start mouth-to-mouth on him and I just thought I'll just try a really vigorous jaw thrust and that was actually sufficient stimulus to get him to take a big breath. And actually very quickly he was breathing up quite rapidly and in fact moments later almost he started thrashing around and we had to give him more ketamine. And that unfortunately was the cycle for that boy throughout the cave and so poor old Rick had a pretty torrid time taking him out. Stay with us, we'll be right back. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. And we're back. Wow. Yeah, that's really interesting. It is. I mean, of course, it's possible. I, I think there are case reports uh, of ketamine causing apnea. Um, but I do wonder if it was that or if it, it, he may have had some strange reaction, as you said, something unique to him. Maybe also was related to the cold. Although if it happened right away, maybe before he was too cold, that makes that less likely. But very interesting. Um, what was the dose, by the way? Was it? Did you do it by weight or did you give them each a... Uh, you couldn't have... You probably didn't have a scale in there to measure them. So did you no, just... No, but you know, we're... As anaesthetists, we're pretty good at eyeballing uh, kids if you've got a paediatric practice and and guessing weight. So I did have a list of the boys from the Army Medical Corps outside with their last known weights from their parents, I guess. And they range from 30 kilograms to 65 kilograms. So um, I'm sorry, this is all in metric, but they're they're small people. Um, And um, so... I, I decided for myself that I could roughly guess their weight by, you know, looking at them. I didn't take the piece of paper in there for, and for other reasons, um, the boys, the order of the boys got all mixed up. And so I lost track of who was who. 
Um, but, I, you know, I had a rough idea of, of the weights and I felt that was good enough for the ketamine anyway. So I used five milligrams per kilo for their loading dose. And then for the other divers who had to top up the doses, I didn't want them guessing weights and, and trying to calculate doses. So I basically preloaded a bunch of syringes of ketamine and labelled them essentially as 40 or 50 kilos. And so on the syringes, I just wrote small boy, big boy. And all the British guys and the other divers had to do was to look at the boy and decide whether it looked like a bigger one or a smaller one and then use one of those those syringes. And I, again, it speaks wonders for the, you know, the therapeutic window of, of ketamine that you can, you can kind of get away with that, I think. Yeah. So, to, uh, so about 250 milligrams, five per kilo for a 50 kilogram boy for a loading dose. And then what was the um, maintenance dose? Uh, sorry. Yes. Yeah, so half of that. Um, okay. Half milligrams per kilo. And then that was, and that was a guess by the way, because <laughs> I, yeah. as I said, I, I had no idea what the maintenance dose of ketamine was, but I figured, well, maybe half will be, you know, if it was intravenous, I would have been all right, but there's not, not much in the literature. Yeah, I agree. And then how about the, the atropine? Obviously you gave IM as well. And how much did you give? Uh, 20 mics per kilo. Um, again, roughly. Okay. Each time or just once? No, just that first dose. And yeah. again, I think okay. that part of this was for my anxiety is, you know, w- was it important? I don't know. Is it something I could do that might help? Yes. Um, yeah, same for the Alprazolam. I, I, I wanted the kids to be calm, as calm as possible when they came down to the water's edge for that first injection because one thing I knew I could not do was drag any of those children kicking and screaming down to the water and assault them with a syringe full of ketamine even even for my very low standards, Jed, that was uh, that was a bridge too far. So I, I needed them to be cooperative. Yeah. All right. And that, so the alprazolam, you gave them orally before you gave them the injections. Yeah. Yeah. I got yeah. the uh, Thai Navy SEALs to administer the alprazolam to the four kids at the start of the, the start of the session. Okay. Uh, and the and okay. So you knew actually, of course, that they were still very that it was a small enough dose because they were still awake and you could walk them down. But you just wanted a little anxiolysis before you pulled out the needles. Yeah, that was the idea. And yeah. um, you know, they still had to climb down this very steep, muddy hill, and they were staggering a bit as it was. So I'm glad I didn't give them any more. Otherwise, they would have been falling down the hill. Um, yeah. And I also thought maybe this might help prevent any dysphoric reactions with the ketamine. Although, right. You know if. You know, we're taught to, with a ketaminized patient, to keep the noise down and not do anything, no physical stimuli if possible. But this, you know, couldn't have been worse, obviously, in terms of what we were about to do to them. So I right. felt obliged to try something. Sounds like a good idea. All right. So you mentioned uh, part of your rationale for the um, atropine was just thinking about country location and what might be present. Were there any other kind of location specific restrictions, anything that you felt like you would have done differently had you been home in Australia, but that you adjusted because you were in Thailand or did you have kind of everything else you needed? No, that's a good question. I, I no, I think that um, I, I would have used the same recipe apart from the glycopyrrolate perhaps in Australia, but there's some very interesting stuff there's some very interesting stuff to talk about in terms of where we were and what we could do that perhaps we couldn't have done in Australia or the US. Um, A lot of the informed consent issues, for example, with the parents, I think would have been impossible to manage in our countries. Whereas in Thailand, which has got a fairly paternalistic approach to these things, didn't tell the parents what the details of the plan 
were. They told them that there would be a cave diving rescue starting the next day. No mention was made of any of the sedation. Uh, in fact, that was denied by the Prime Minister for several days, I believe, after the event. And can you imagine in our own countries, you know, I would have been obliged to talk to those parents and tell them exactly what we were proposing. And can you imagine the response from all these parents when I said, truthfully, I don't believe any of these children will come out alive. I mean, how can you possibly put that on these the parents of these children? And maybe half of them, half of them might have said, well, it's the best of a, a bad bunch of choices, let's do it. And the other half might have said, well, where there's life, there's hope, let's not do that and let's see if something else comes up. And that would have made the whole thing stall and the children would have all died. So in a way, I was grateful that we were in a country like that where we were able to just make this decision and, and push forward with it. doesn't mean it was right, but um, it, it made it a success. Absolutely. Were there any legal worries? I could imagine a situation, and I don't know about Thailand, but there might be some countries where if you, if something had gone wrong and if, if one of the children had died, that they might have tried to hold you accountable. Was Did that go through your mind? Did you have any legal assurances? Uh, it didn't go through my mind until the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade from the Australian government pointed it out to me. Uh, in fact, on the the morning of the first rescue day, I was literally in my wetsuit, in my harness, walking towards the cave entrance when uh, one of the Australian government officials sidled up to me and just said, look, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, Dr Harris, it's uh, become apparent that if one of these children does succumb, then it's not impossible you could end up in the Thai judicial system. I went, whoa, that's, that's not cool. <laughs> but I think in my mind I felt that, well, surely that's impossible. I'm a good Samaritan, essentially. I'm a volunteer. I'm helping do what I can do. I couldn't really in my mind believe that that could eventuate, which was incredibly naive actually, because, you know, in that, in, in a government structure like Thailand, which is a military junta, you know, the, the, the army took control of the government in a coup. Uh, the prime minister is an army general and the entire government is run in a military kind of control and command. So I think had some, some of those children died, it's not impossible they'd be looking for a scapegoat and perhaps it's easier to blame the foreigners who propose this madness than, you know, the local officials. So I actually said at the time, well, look, I haven't got the bandwidth to even think about that sort of stuff. I've, my head is so full with this other madness that I just need to trust the Australian government to get me out of Thailand if there is a problem. And I'm sure there were plans in, in place for that. But, yeah, as I say, maybe I was a bit naive that I didn't really believe at the time that was a possible thing, but I'm sure it probably was. Wow. Yeah, incredibly scary. And, and uh, you know, I'm glad you didn't uh, pause to think too hard on it and that it didn't stop you from doing um, what, what ended up being an incredible and miraculous recovery. Um, I'm sure you've, you've relived it uh, a million times, both with people asking about it and in your own head. Can you... Talk a little bit about what it felt like in the moment. I mean, you, we've talked about kind of preparing and your worries that it might not work. And and then in that moment when you were anesthetizing that first kid and taking them into the water, you know, what was going through your head? Did you think, you know, this might work? Were you thinking here goes nothing, but it's probably not going to work? You know, what was happening in that moment? I think this audience will really understand the way I was feeling, I th well, I think you will, because when you are faced with a patient whose outcome is not, not guaranteed, but you know that you have to do something because they are 
on a hiding to nothing. They're going to die if we don't intervene. And that just puts, suddenly it just makes you feel like, well, you know, I'm the man for the hour. This is, this is my job. I, you know, my head just went into that workspace. This is the next patient in front of me. And I think people are self-selected for working in critical care or emergency medicine. And you just, you know, you just realize that I'm the patient's best chance right now. I just have to do my best. And I was able to kind of put all those other worries aside and just crack on with the job. Um, it didn't escape me, though, the sort of significance of what I was doing when it came time to immerse that first boy in the water. I think that's when it did really hit me what, what we were doing. So, you know, the anesthesia seemed to go well. I was a little bit surprised and maybe a little bit worried by how fast the kids seemed to go to sleep and started to immediately doubt whether I'd over overdone the dose. I mean, it was literally between two and five minutes. Um, and some of those kids who went to sleep in two minutes, I thought, wow, that's a lot faster than I expected, <laughs> which shows well, am, my yeah. lack of, lack of uh, uh, experience with IM ketamine. But it was quick. And I thought, is that too much? You know, <laughs> what have I done here? So, and then you've got to get a full face mask on a rag doll, which is not easy. And we became more and more proficient at that. But, you know, it was, that was a bit horrifying how difficult that was the first time. And then came the moment to immerse the boy's face in the water and do a test. And so I was just expecting almost for this mask just to fill up with water and that will be the end of this whole experiment, you know. But, you know, so I remember pushing the first boy's face into that very fetid water and then quickly lifting him up to see if any water was in there. No, it seems fine. And immersing them again for a bit longer and waiting for the bubbles to appear from the, the mouthpiece, uh, the regulator out the side of the full face mask. And then third and final experiment, just leaving them lying face down in the water, happily bubbling away. I did notice they all seemed to get a period of apnea when they were first pushed into the water. Um, so, I mean, we, you know, we know about the diving reflex, but of course, most of the face is covered. So maybe it's just the water around the rest of the head would make them stop breathing for a while. And that became a very common observation. But then... Um, you know, sometimes I would lose my nerve and lift them up because they didn't seem to be breathing for too long. And other times if I stuck it out for 30 seconds or more, then they would eventually start breathing. The other interesting observation, which is weird that, you know, or maybe it's not weird as, as medical people with an interest in the science and observation of what we're doing is that if you purge the regulator, anyone who's a scuba diver will know about the purge button on the front of a regulator. Well, the thing on the full face mask is very similar and it basically gives a positive pressure breath, I think, when you do it in a full face mask. If we did that just once, that single breath seemed to trigger uh, ongoing respiration in these boys. So we learnt that trick a bit, as did the other divers. They learnt that they could actually give them a, an extra breath, breath if they were a bit, a bit worried. So, yeah, there's lots of cool stuff started to happen. But, yeah, that first moment, I just thought, wow, this is, this is so wrong on so many levels, what we're doing here, and followed closely behind when we decided we were going to tie their hands behind their backs and uh, tie their ankles together. Again, for two reasons, to make them as streamlined as possible so the British divers could post them through the little holes and cracks in the cave when the time came. And secondly, in case the boy did wake up unexpectedly that they would not hopefully be able to reach up and rip their mask off or do the same to the British diver. And again, the act of restraining someone um, which most of us will never do and have never done, uh, seemed abhorrent. It was, it was awful. 
And I'll certainly never forget that first day that um, it was very, very tough in that respect. But then, you know, that boy goes and the next boy comes down and you go back into the into work mode again. It's time for the next patient. Yeah, amazing. Uh, and how did it feel? So as anyone who's seen the documentary will know, you got them all out. Every single one of them made it out alive. How, when you, when the final boy came out alive from that water, how did that feel? Yeah, well, each day I wouldn't know the results of the day's activities until I finally got out of the cave at the end of the day. So I had this three-hour swim alone with my thoughts each day, wondering what I was going to find when I got out. And uh, obviously the first day I was told four out of four alive. And I went, wow, that was, you know, because I was so prepared for bad news. So that was amazing. That That's probably the most elated I'd, I felt, uh, I think, in the whole time. But it was immediately followed by absolute dread because I thought, well, I don't know how this has worked on day one, but surely tomorrow this will all become unraveled and it'll be so much worse when maybe, you know, expectations have been set now and we're going to, um, you know, we're going to be exposed for the frauds that we are. And and what's more is because it worked yesterday, people are going to start pointing the finger, well, you've done something wrong today, what, what's happened? But on day three, when, again, I found that all five, because there were five on the last day, all five had come out alive, I can't really explain how I felt. I was so exhausted, you know, running on two or three hours sleep for the last five days and uh, so physically exhausted as well. I was just, I was just stunned, I think was the, the best way. I couldn't, I couldn't feel happy. I couldn't feel sad. I was just like, oh, I'm done. <laughs> so I go to the pub. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, what an unbelievable, it, you know, you, you, I remember watching the documentary and thinking, I almost wanted to double check to make sure it wasn't a, a film. You know, it, feel, it felt like it could have easily been a, a fiction film. It was just so, such an incredible, miraculous um, uh, outcome. And, uh, and yet it is, it went, talking to you and hearing, I mean, I can't imagine the stress and, and exhaustion and, you know, that, that I think is really telling that your, your feeling was like, okay, they all survived now. Now you know, I can finally rest. I mean, what you must've been just beyond exhausted. Um, is there anything, if you could go back, I mean, you mentioned maybe you might think about glycopyrrolate if you could get it, but are, anything now thinking back that you would do differently? I mean, I probably not a lot since it worked, but is there anything yeah. that uh, you would do? That you've, you've exactly hit the point there. I mean, the fact is that it worked. I wouldn't change a thing, you know, and yep. it, actually on the first night, the Thai medical people encouraged me to back off on the dose of ketamine because they were finding some of the boys were asleep for a long time. And I think what was happening was they were building this depot of ketamine in their system with the hypothermia. They just weren't clearing it very fast, perhaps, and... Um, you know, one of the boys was asleep until two o'clock in the morning. In fact, when I got the message late that night that one of the boys is not waking up, I thought, oh God, you know, we've given him hypoxic brain injury or something else dreadful has happened. But it was just, you know, they were so full of ketamine. And, you know, I don't blame the British divers at all for that because I said to them in my little anesthesia lesson, if you're in doubt, give them another dose because what I don't want to happen is for those boys to wake up and panic and drown one of you guys. Um, that was probably a greater fear for me than the loss of the boys, to be honest. Um, so, yeah, the ties said, we want you to give less ketamine. And I said, you've got four boys alive. I predicted none. I'm not changing anything. You know, yeah. I don't want them to wake up underwater and lose the life of one of my British mates. 
So um, I just stuck to my guns and um, I think we got a bit, we got faster each day. Everything became more efficient. We got some more divers at one stage. So that helped move the boys through the, the cave a bit faster. And so they ended up with less ketamine overall and that definitely helped. So if I could have one thing, I'd just have more divers in the water, you know, to help the Brits on the way past and that would, uh, that would be it. Yeah. Amazing. Is there, when you think about kind of lessons for other anesthesia providers, is there anything you, I mean, it is extremely unlikely that anyone else is going to be in that kind of a situation, but when you think about people in in their everyday practice, of course, sometimes dealing with emergencies and, and unstable patients, is there anything that you would say, you know, this is what I took away from this kind of extreme example that I would recommend people keep in mind? I think I'd already learnt enough about myself and working in these sort of environments before I got there. And so, um, you know, working in countries like Vanuatu with just a pulse oximeter or with the power in the theatre going off about once a week and holding a torch, you know, shining into the abdomen for the surgeon, working in those sort of conditions had really improved my personal resilience and resourcefulness. And whilst I'm not encouraging people to go off piste and do stuff that is not their normal practice, you know, avail yourself of opportunities to do different stuff that that intimidates you, you know, go and do different kinds of medical practice in different environments if the opportunities ever arise. In the same way that I always encourage my trainees, my residents to do to travel and go to other countries whether it's first world countries or otherwise and and embrace other ways of of doing things because there's always more than one way to skin a cat and the more you've seen the more you have in in your armamentarian and the more prepared on that one day in your life which might be coming when you are asked to do something that is way outside your comfort zone and um, all that stuff will not only give you a skill set to draw on, but also that sort of personal courage to, to draw on to back yourself. You know, for me, the most frightening sort of anaesthetic I can give is when I'm close to subspecialty experts, but I'm the one doing what is essentially a subspecialty case. And, you know, that peer oversight or review uh, that will follow inevitably, especially if something doesn't go according to plan, is very, very daunting. But when you're in a place where you are the man um, or, or woman, obviously, um, and, and, and it's down to you, then you've just, you've got to be assured that you are the person for the moment and you just do your best. And that I find takes the pressure right off. Yeah, that's great advice. So you mentioned before that your your career is very different, uh, not surprisingly, now than it was before this. So talk a little bit about how your life and career has changed since uh, since this all happened. Well, I, again, naively didn't realise what intense scrutiny we would come under when we returned to Australia, As and this happened to everyone who was involved in this rescue, that, you know, the world was so hungry for information about what had gone on inside that cave. I had no idea of the size of the global story that was following, you know, this rescue. And, you know, it sounds a bit trite or self deprecating but we just came home thinking well that was a bit of an adventure and you know it honestly didn't seem that special to us we realized we'd done something pretty cool and unique Um, we'd been involved in this amazing army of volunteers all cooperating together which felt very very special but we didn't feel like our role in it was anything particularly um, special and so I came home on a Friday night and I honestly I said to my wife 
I might take Monday off, you know, have a have a long weekend <laughs> and then just go back to work on Tuesday. And I just thought that would life would be just normal. Well, the media interest around this was just overwhelming and so much so that, you know, I'm not a very public person. I'm quite shy with, with strangers and um, I, f- I just said, well, I've got to get out of town. <laughs> and so Craig and I escaped on a, um, a, to a very remote, remote caving location and just hid away for a couple of weeks to try and escape all this media attention, assuming that when we come back it will have all gone. Well, it was just worse when we came back. It was like the life of Brian, the Monty Python film. You know, only the true Messiah would deny his divinity. So, so it just got worse. And so then we went to Canada caving for a couple of weeks on an expedition that we had already planned. And again, worse again when we came back. And then we were um, nominated for this award in Australia called the Australian of the Year, which is a huge thing here. And when we actually won that award... Well, that was the end of it. Um, it would become very churlish of us to not, um, you know, engage with the media and 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 play our role as these so-called inspirational Australians. So, I guess I decided at that point, well, I'm just going to have to change my attitude and suck it up a bit and and get on with this part of my my life. And I got to about May of that year when I realised that this is actually a massive role, this Australian of the Year thing, and I was you know, being going around the country on all these speaking engagements and um, actually some of them were being paid, so I was actually starting to make a living out of it. And I thought, well, this, this is interesting. You know, I'm 57 years old. Maybe, there's, maybe there is a life outside of medicine. And so I actually resigned from the aeromedical service and just did my private practice for the rest of that year, just half-time. Got to the end of that year and I thought it would all, again, I thought surely now it will all go away. Again, it just got busier and busier and busier. And then COVID started, of course. Um, so um, I've got to the point four years later where I'm just doing two lists a week and they're just sedation lists for endoscopy, colonoscopy work. Um, and uh, I'm absolutely flat out busy doing corporate speaking, writing books, working on some documentary films, joining people like yourself on podcasts and having an amazing time of it. And I actually feel very honoured to be one of the people who can tell this story because there's so much to learn from it, from it in terms of, you know, cooperation and teamwork and leadership and, and resilience, personal resilience, which is something I've become really interested in. So, you know, I think medicine is, is a, um, a part of my life that is just about over, to be honest, and I never thought I would be saying that. Uh, as you, you know, if this happened to you, you, I'm sure you couldn't imagine that, you know, next day you're suddenly not doing your job. You're out and about talking about something else. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. It is, but I'll tell you, it is, you know, I think you're inspiring so many people who, I mean, across the spectrum, but certainly people who do anesthesia. So while you may not be practicing it, you're still having an incredible impact on, on people who do. Um, and, and I'm grateful to you for, for being willing to take the time to do that. I'm wondering if you if you have any follow up on the boys. Uh, have you heard since uh, in the past four years uh, anything about them? Yeah, a little bit. I've been back to Thailand twice to uh, visit them and to do some other stuff. And from what I can see, they all seem to be very very well, very healthy uh, mentally. They seem to be okay. Uh, I follow them on Facebook, although there's no common language, so we don't really talk. But I just you know see their photos of them playing soccer and. Uh, they seem to be enjoying that. They all want to be professional football players. That's still their goal. Uh, so that's interesting. So, yeah, I think that the outcomes for them have been pretty good. 
having said that, I think there's a fair bit of pressure on them to be model citizens now, to be the best they can be. They've been given this second chance at life and given the enormity of the global community effort that went into saving them, I'm sure there's some expectation that they will, you know, pay that back in some way by just being, you know, as I say, the best the best people they can be. So that's a bit of an unkind pressure to put on young people, but at the same time, they seem to be pretty amazing kids, so they'll be all right. Yeah, amazing. Um, I, I know we're um, taking a lot of your time and, and I, I want to respect that, but I just want to ask you, you mentioned kind of how one of the things that's come from this is a, an interest in resilience and, um, you know, uh, the individual ability to overcome adversity. Talk a little bit about that. Do you, when did that, I mean, obviously you yourself overcame incredible adversity to make this happen. The boys overcame adversity to, to, to survive the 13 days until you got to them. And then of course, to get out the, you know, entire team of, as you mentioned, hundreds of people facing what seemed an impossible task. Talk is, is all of that part of this or, or where does that thought come from? Yeah, well, I've had so much time, obviously, to think about how did I find myself in this position and how was I able to do what many people have told me, oh, I couldn't do that, you know. And I think a lot of that stems from the cave diving itself. Of course, that's a natural fear for people who don't engage with with that sport. But, of course, for for me, that's just what we do for fun on the weekends. We love being underwater in caves. And so I want to emphasise that 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 was not uh, a scary thing, really, for, for the people involved. Um, that is just our, our happy place. But, you know, facing this moral dilemma about what to do for the children, I've wondered how did I find the courage to make this decision? And as I think I've said, for me, it was almost a no-brainer. It was the easier of the two decisions. So you go with what was, was easier. The idea of leaving the boys to die was impossible. So hence we just did something. But, you know, I, I've spent my life chasing adventure in in one form or another and sometimes that means you you endure a bit of suffering and and hardship along the way and have a few near misses perhaps and I feel that 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 aspect of my life has put me in good stead for finding the courage to do some other things and I'm increasingly worried about young people today who are you know facing this mental health epidemic um, we are told and I have no reason to doubt that that's the truth and I think part of it comes from this culture of safety in our in our world where we are increasingly worried and protective of our children, whereas, you know, um, I'm the last of the baby boomers, but, you know, even in my day we were encouraged to disappear at breakfast time and, and come home at, at dinner time and not to be seen in the middle and, you know, go and explore and have fun and you'd have your little gang of friends with your bikes and off you'd go and and do good things and sometimes do some bad things. But, you know, as long as you came home in one piece, everyone was happy and you suffered a few bumps and scrapes along the way, but not many people died. I mean, it was all pretty right. Um, And today we are so paranoid about stranger danger and accidents and all of these things that I think we're actually smothering our children to the point of impacting on their well-being because sensible risk-taking is actually a hugely important part of normal growth and development. Um, and the other side of this, of course, is social media and smartphones and things that are completely consuming for young people and, and older people alike. And 
the addiction to that and that negative feedback we get from some people, you know, when, you know, you've got to be beautiful, you can't be ugly, you can't be overweight, and that's reinforced every moment on social media. And so that's having an impact on all these kids. And um, they're, they're struggling, I think. And, you know, the combination of these two things, if you can get them off their phones and kick them outside and get them to have some fun, that's just something I'm trying to encourage, I, I think. So that's it in a nutshell. And this has been the impetus to, this event has been the impetus to try and add that message whenever I'm speaking to, to groups of people. Well, I couldn't agree more. Thank you for spreading that message. I think it's crucial, absolutely crucial. As a as a kid who grew up absolutely just running around the neighborhood with no adult supervision from uh, every free moment, uh, I, I think it was so healthy and so important to development. And I certainly we try to do that to the extent we can with our with our girls as well. Um, Harry, anything we didn't cover that you want to say? That any any messages we didn't uh, cover that you want to get out to the audience before we move on? No, I don't think so, Jed. Let's uh, hit all the big, the big marks. Great. Well, I just want to, again, before I, I want to get to the random recommendations part of our show, but first I want to just, again, thank you for the incredible bravery you showed, the amazing work you did, the, and the rescue of these boys, and for then um, really going about sharing it and inspiring people. Um, it is really, uh, it really is an inspiration. Uh, so thank you. It's been, it's been a pleasure. I want to, um, I want to ask you if you have a uh, random recommendation, something you would recommend the audience check out. Well, of course, <laughs> my mind's gone completely blank, of course, Jed, but um, there is my own podcast uh, called Real Risk where I'm talking to risk takers about this, the very stuff that we've just been discussing. So, I, you know, I went into this with uh, the hypothesis that, you know, all my life people have said, oh, Harry, I couldn't do that. You must be crazy to be a cave diver, right? And so I thought, well, I don't feel like I'm crazy. In fact, I think I'm just a very good risk manager. Um, so I set out to talk to other people who I think in my mind, surely that guy's crazy, someone like, um, you know, um, Alex Honnold climbing El Cap uh, in the film Free Solo. Now, that's crazy. How could you do that with such a high risk with no safety net? Uh, and I thought, well, I'll talk to guys like that and find out if they're crazy or actually maybe they're just like me. They're very good at what they do and they're good risk managers. And you know what? I think perhaps with one exception that has turned out to be the truth, they are just so proficient. They have mastery over their passion that for them to do what appears crazy to us is actually within their scope or, you know, is within their skill set. And so it makes them not crazy. It just makes them bloody good at what they do. Now, there was one woman who drives top-fueling drag races who readily admits that the entire reason she does that 2.7 seconds down the track at 300 and something mile an hour is because of the huge squirt of adrenaline that she receives in that moment. And she screams at the top of her voice as she does it, and then she says, I just want to do that again. Okay, that's <laughs> crazy. <laughs> that's crazy. But, um, you know, big wave surfers, um, soldiers, People who do dangerous things either, either for fun or for a living, I just went out to talk to them. So if I can plug this whole message about risk-taking and, um, you know, building resilience, maybe I can recommend my own podcast to, uh, to your listeners. Absolutely. I'm so glad you said that. I want to check it out and will, and I, and we should definitely recommend it, that everyone check that out, the Real Risk Podcast. It's, uh, I was going to recommend two things. 
Um, and it's funny you brought one of them up. So the first is, of course, the documentary we've been discussing here, which is The Rescue, which is incredibly well done and tells this story so vividly. So I really would urge people to watch that, The Rescue. Um, and then the other that you just brought up would be Free Solo, which is an incredible documentary also about the um, free climbing, meaning no no ropes, no safety net um, of, uh, of um, the um, uh, Yosemite National Park uh, wall there. Um, is it called El Capitan? Is that what it's called? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was an incredible documentary as well. So both of those are worth checking out. Um, Harry, thank you again. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Jed, it's been great. Thank you very much. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter, we are on Facebook, we are on Reddit, and we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at Akrak Podcast, and you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Sonia Amanat and Chris Reese are our social media managers. Dr. April Liu and Edison Jang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, 
visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.